Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So today, I actually am talking about a topic that I'm actually kind of excited about. Um, In our 314th episode, I thought we would talk about medical record documentation requirements that Medicare has put out for uh, requested audits. So there's an MLN fact sheet, that's their knowledge resource training fact sheet where they, you know, Medicare Learning Network, where they tell you how things are done and it's MLN 909160. It came out in July and it was some added examples of how you can support your Medicare claims if you are ever asked for um, a an audit. And remember, there's all kinds of different audits. There's TPE audits, targets, target probe educate. There's um, comprehensive error rate testing audits, the CERT. And what that is, and just so you know, that is to measure improper payments in the Medicare fee schedule fee for service program. And it's random. So it's not targeted under CERT. Medicare reviews random samples of Medicare claims, fee-for-service claims, to see if they paid them correctly under Medicare coverage coding and billing rules. So it, it's it's truly a, a random service. So it's not if you get an audit, it's when. And these are the CERT program is managed by two contractors. So a, a CERT statistical contractor, they determine how many claims are sampled and then calculates any improper payments. Typically, you'll get a letter that's, you know, 30 or 60 claims. And then the CERT review contractor requests and reviews medical records from providers and suppliers. And um, when they review, request a review, you as the billing provider have to obviously get supporting documentation if they're asking for physician orders or notes or anything, but they're really looking for medical necessity. Um, They're possibly looking for referring physician information um, or other location records. So um, you have to have things that are linked to that service that you either ordered, billed for, or provided in the record. So sometimes practices don't know that. So one of the things they came out with is they said, you know, under a CERT review, which is very popular and probably the the review they do most often, it says we pay for necessary services, but medical record documentation must show their medical necessity. So they're talking about, you know, your medical record staff who are more important than ever. I remember we used to hire, and this is not to discount medical record staff, but back in the day, so before but maybe 20 years ago or more, we used to hire people that wanted to just break into medical in the medical record department because they really weren't seeing patients. They really weren't, you know, experienced in the billing office, um, you know, whatever. But medical record staff now, oh my gosh, they, they really are so important because of all the rules around medical records and what you have to be cognitive of when you are giving records for anybody that requests it. So if the the CERT requests it, they're saying to instruct medical staff, um, medical record staff and third-party medical record copy services to provide all the records that support payment. They said these could include records for services before the date of service listed um, on the medical record. It could be a signed office note from a previous visit where the provider ordered a diagnostic or other service. So it's not just the date of service they're talking about. 
Um, they want a care plan by the supervising physician if you're billing incident two. Remember, incident two can't be a new patient visit. And incident two means that for all established patient visits, the mid-level provider is just carrying out that initiated care plan that the physician created to start. And that's probably one of the biggest things the RAC audits um, look at is the fact that incident two isn't followed. There's a, a new request, a new change, a new problem that's addressed by the mid-level and they try to bill it out incident two when that doesn't even qualify. And then they go on to say for incident two services, the care plan written by the supervising physician or non-physician practitioner if they're the ones um, that are the, the care plan initiator. And then lab orders for recurring tests to meet the specific needs of an individual patient. You know, sometimes people get caught up in the fact that there are certain lab tests that will cover other things. There are certain diagnostics that will cover certain diagnoses, but that doesn't make it medically necessary. It doesn't mean you should use that. Um, I remember I was talking to my good friend Christine Hall about this, and she had mentioned chest x-rays pay for hypertension diagnosis. And we we're both scratching our head going, why? And so... Just because it does doesn't mean, well, let's just go ahead and use that for what we want. You, you have to make sure that there is medical necessity and it meets the specific needs of an individual patient. And so one of the things that was really added because of insufficient documentation errors is that, you know, they, they're saying that the CERT reviewers have determined claims have errors when the documentation submitted is not sufficient to support the Medicare payment for the services billed. And it means then when they ask for records, they're saying the reviewer couldn't conclude some of the allowed services where they're actually provided or were provided at the level billed or were medically necessary. Remember, that is the overarching criteria. Was it medically necessary? I know I was just uh, having a conversation with one of my Coding Corner clients over email and they keep wanting to get paid for a patient wanting an injection of a weight loss drug. Well, the drug is on a list with Medicare that says it's self-administered, so it's not something you could charge for. But the doctor was adamant that the patient didn't want to self-administer, which, believe me, I'm not one that would want to do that if I had injections. I understand that, but where the disconnect sometimes is, is that if it's a non-covered service, can you charge for it? Yes, to the patient, it's non-covered, and they have to understand it's cash out of their pocket. They pay for it. Where the disconnect is, is that a lot of physicians and providers want to charge the insurance company and have it paid for everything you do, and that, that's not realistic. So not everything you do is insurance payable because there are rules when an insurance kicks in. Remember, the only reason insurance works is because you've got healthy patients that don't use it. So if you use it for every little thing, it's it's not only going to be completely too expensive to have, but there's not going to be much coverage there. And also reviewers have said claims in the category uh, where it's in you know inefficient or insufficient information, they said there's certain elements that are required of a, of a certain condition of payment that tends to be missing. And they say a lot of times a physician signature on an order or the order isn't completed, so an incomplete progress note, unsigned, undated, insufficient detail, an unauthenticated medical record. And they keep going back to that signature. No supervising signature, illegible signatures without a signature log or att attestation to identify the, the signer, 
or an electronic signature without an electronic record protocol policy that documents the process for electronic signatures. So that's new. Um, or they have no documentation of intent to order services or procedures. So there's no signed order or progress note saying why you, why something was done. And there's all, they also go on to say that there may be an order, but the order's expired. Now there's, there's not a lot of documentation that I can find as far as, um, you know, how long is an order and a chart good for a patient to have a CT or a patient to have a, a lab test. But typically, if there could be a change in condition, I would say 60 days, you should have an internal protocol, especially when there's really lack of guidance, sometimes published guidance um, and assistance from Medicare and other third party payers. They just say it's, you know, it's too long and you need to have some kind of an internal policy so that you can make sure that if they if it's ever questioned, um, they say, okay, well, now we understand why you're doing that. They give a couple of documentation error um, examples in this uh, MLN. One was on physical therapy services. It says documentation didn't support certification of the plan of care for PT services. And it says we require the physician's or NPP signature and the date of certification of the plan or progress note indicating they reviewed and approved the plan of care. That's really big. Also because, and this is a side note for me, also because PT is still on telehealth list is approved through 2024, which I hate by the way. I can't say it loud enough from the rooftops. Physical therapy needs to be back in person. Oh my gosh, I hate it through telehealth. It's important that you also document um, that you understand that some of the PT entities are saying we only have it through, you know, virtual now and you you need to protest. Patients are basically foregoing it, saying it doesn't help, you know, the, the spouses don't want to help, the parents don't want to help. It and they're not medical people that should be helping. It should be by the physical therapists themselves. So I, I'm very loud about being against that. So make sure that's well documented. Evaluation and management services. Now obviously ENM is low hanging fruit. So is DME, durable medical equipment. And they put in here um, that CERT identified office visits established, hospital initial, hospital subsequent. They're the top three in ENM service category errors. They say the high errors consisted of insufficient documentation, medical necessity, and incorrect coding of the services to support medical necessity and accurate billing of those services, especially when a 25 modifier is used. So obviously they're looking at that. And I know I talked about the 25 modifier a couple of weeks ago on the CodeCast, and that was more about, you know, an established patient. If the patient's coming in for a planned service, there is no office visit. On the DME side, they talk about certain DME Hicks-Picks codes like hospital beds, glucose monitors, manual wheelchairs. You have to have a valid, it requires a valid detailed written order prior to delivery. Um, the physician's NPI number must be on the, the detailed written order and they only pay claims for DME if the ordering physician and the DME supplier are enrolled in PICOS with Medicare on that date of service. And it is a condition of the payment of physician assistant, a physician, a P, um, nurse practitioner, or a certified nurse specialist. They had to have a face-to-face -face encounter exam with the patient within six months before the written order. So that actually that for DME, there's a written order um, timeline there. One of the other things is they're talking about there's not a lot of compliance for CT scans. They said documentation of the plan or intent to order a CT scan was insufficient to support its medical necessity. 
And so if the handwritten signature is illegible or the signature log is electronic, but it doesn't include a protocol of how that's handled, then they will come back and take back that money. They just don't want you doing routine tests just for the heck of it. They, and especially if you are doing them in your office or if you get any monetary um, recoupment for that for the referral or even when you bill for it. They want to make sure that you're doing it for medical necessity purposes and not just reimbursement. So take a look at that publication because it's it's really important and I like how they updated uh, and they updated some things in red basically saying what they were missing in documentation when they were requesting um, the those audits and so I think that's really going to help you if you actually get a hold of that document. Today's CodeCast podcast is also brought to you today by Decision Health Select Coder. Get all the decision-making information you need to code in a single online resource. Select Coder offers you the comprehensive coding guidance required to code accurate claims the first time. Try Select Coder for free. Sign up at decisionhealth.com forward slash SC free trial. That's decisionhealth.com forward slash SC free trial. You know, I was reading an article today that I thought was really good, and I get this um, AHIMA Smart Brief, and they always have a, you know, top, you know, articles of what to read. They actually pulled one from my website recently, so I appreciate that. And I thought this was interesting. You know, my feelings on telehealth, because I feel like, and I maybe this is tooting my own horn as being the telehealth guru, because I've been teaching telehealth, not just coding, billing, reimbursement, but compliance for 20 years. But the pandemic changed everything. Um, I had to implement some different things with different practices. Now I'm trying to get people to understand that not everything is a telehealth visit. And as I mentioned before, with certain things. And so one of the things I read, which I love. So the Iowa City VA Medical Center, which I visited before, they've received a $1.5 million um, endowment in federal grant funds to expand its four-year-old telehospital medicine program beyond its initial five rural hospitals. So they utilize the program to bridge the gap between the need of inpatient hospital medical expertise and those patients that are admitted to rural facilities. So basically it's a way to access a specialty physician that's more than 50 miles away from patients who are in a rural area. This is what telehealth is supposed to be about. I love this program because if you can't have access to what you need, especially from a specialty perspective, because you're in a rural area, you're in a place that there's just not a a call for that kind of specialist, then how can you get it? How can you have access to it? So I I love that they got a federal grant for that. And when you think of telehealth, this is what I like. I, I just don't like telehealth for convenience. I think it gets excessive. I think it you know, I'm not saying that it's it's not needed in some stand, in, in instances, maybe for medicine reconciliation, so you don't have to come in, just everything's fine, just I need my refills, and I want to go over my chronic conditions, my physicians, I've had this, that, and the other, not just refills, let me clarify, but, you know, or certain right now preventative is not covered on that, but just certain well, not well checks, but more um, patients who are doing well with their chronic, you know, follow-up, but for me, it's just, it, it's so out of control right now. So I really like this um, telehospital program, and I, I hope more um, hospitals that are in the rural area, I hope they're able to get funding for that. So I think that's awesome. So a personal tidbit this week about me and what's going on. First, I want to thank everyone who direct messaged me, who posted something to 
um, LinkedIn or whatever on my birthday wishes. Thank you so much. That was great. I'm, I'm anytime we can make it a another year, <laughs> we're always happy to do that. So that was really fun. And to my friends out there that um, we had a fun birthday party, Monday night football, and uh, I had a dozen people come. And so that was a good time. My daughter came out the week before, and we celebrated a restaurant. So again, I just want to say thank you very much for a great uh, birthday, I guess, week. It's been really fun. Okay, everyone, hope you have a great rest of your week. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. Make it a great day. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music.